When I was 14, I worked on a farm with a couple of other boys, and we were picking up rocks and roots on land that had recently been cleared, and it seemed like the land went for acres and acres, and there were so many rocks and roots. And one of the boys that I, that I worked with, he happened to be the boss's son. He was a couple years older than me, and he was a lot of fun to be around. He loved to joke, but when his dad wasn't around, he loved to goof off. Um, he really didn't put in a whole lot of work when his dad wasn't around. I'm sure I could have improved too, but when his dad showed up, this young man was quite the hand. He could get with it when, when his dad was around. And, and I sometimes wonder if we're not a bit like that young man. We're just sort of living life our own way, doing our own thing, going our own way, kind of living as if the father's not around. Is this really what's best for us? Is it best for us to just sort of live life going the direction that we want to go? Just chasing our own pursuits? Or does God have a better plan for us? Does God have a work for us to do? We'll think about these questions together as we continue our journey through Haggai. We'll be in the second chapter of Haggai this morning. This is one of those that you you may have to turn to the table of contents to find. If, you got a, if you're here and you'd like to use one of the pew Bibles, you can uh, take a pew Bible there right in front of you. You can turn to page 839. The book of Haggai is a series of messages that the prophet Haggai delivered to the Jews. Uh, it, for this reason, it's fair to conclude that he's the author of the book. Now, to understand Haggai, you have to understand Israel's history up to this point. So I want to give you a quick overview of Israel's history. Remember that God called Abraham. And he said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your descendants. And through your descendants, all of the peoples of the earth are going to be blessed. And he promised Abraham to give him a special land. Well, eventually God would give Abraham and his descendants this promised land, this special land. And the nation of Israel was born. King Solomon was one of the kings, and during the time that King Solomon reigned in Israel, Israel flourished. The nation, the nation was wealthy. There was just, it was an incredible time in the history of Israel. They built a magnificent temple. Now, the temple was the place where God met with his people. It symbolized God's presence among his people. So this incredible temple was constructed, but eventually God's people would rebel against him. They would they would go their own way. They would, they would fall into sin and idolatry. And so God raised up King Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonian Empire. He raised them up to bring judgment upon his people. In 586 B.C., King Nebuchadnezzar's forces came in and absolutely destroyed Jerusalem. The walls of the city were destroyed. The, the temple was ransacked. It was a horrible scene, and most of the people, most of the Jews were taken into captivity in Babylon. And so, God would later raise up the Medo-Persians to come and to overtake the Babylons, the Babylonians. And when this happened, in 539, uh, a man named Cyrus came to power, and he had a different attitude than Nebuchadnezzar and and the Babylonian kings, he permitted the Jews to return to their homeland. So in 538 B.C., the Jews who were in captivity, many of them went back to Jerusalem. And they began work on the temple at that point. 
but there was opposition from the neighbors and they gave up. They, they didn't uh, continue uh, in rebuilding the temple. Well, in Haggai chapter 1, God confronts his people. And he says to his people, hey, look, your houses are built. You're going on about your lives, living your lives, tending to your affairs. But the temple, it's still desolate. This is nearly 20 years after they've returned. And they've made no attempt to rebuild the house of God. Well, when God gave this message to the prophet Haggai, the people responded. And they began work on the temple. In fact, they began work on the temple on September 21st, 520 B.C. And we're going to pick up there in Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and to the remnant of the people. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Doesn't it seem to you like nothing by comparison? Even so, be strong, Zerubbabel. This is the Lord's declaration. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, high priest. Be strong, all of you people of the land. This is the Lord's declaration. Work, for I am with you. The declaration of the Lord of armies. This is the promise I made to you when you came out of Egypt. And my spirit is present among you. Don't be afraid. For the Lord of armies says this once more. In a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The sea and the dry land. I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of armies. The silver and the gold belong to me. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The final glory of this house will be greater than the first, says the Lord of armies. I will provide peace in this place. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. In verse 1, we see the date according to our modern calendar is October 17th, 520. This means that the Jews had been working on the temple for nearly a month. Now, progress in reconstructing the temple had probably gone had, had probably gone slowly for one reason. There were several festival days to be observed during the seventh month. And during these festival days, work couldn't be done. In fact, October 17th, 520, or the 21st day of the seventh month, was the final day of the Festival of Booths or the Festival of Shelters. Now, during the Festival of Shelters, the people would move out of their homes and they would live in little temporary shelters that they'd constructed out of branches and, and twigs and the like. The reason they did this, it was to remind them of God's faithfulness to their ancestors when they left Egypt. You see, when God delivered his people from Egypt, they wandered for a period of time and God took care of them. So they, they lived in these temporary shelters for about a week to remind them of God's faithfulness. Also, it was a way to celebrate God's faithfulness in the harvest. And so the festivals would have slowed the progress on the temple more than likely. Also, preparations. You know the, the work that you do when you get started in any task? That probably took a bit of time to organize the workers, to, to clear away the, the rubble and, and the ruins of the old temple. And so more than likely, after about a month of work, there's not a lot to show. And we can see as we look at this passage that the people are losing heart. They're getting discouraged. Now, as we mentioned this was the final day of the Feast of Shelters, and so the people would have been gathered in Jerusalem. And as the people are gathered here to observe this festival day, this holy day, 
the Lord gives Haggai a message, a word. And Haggai begins to share this word with his people. He says this is a message for Zerubbabel. He was the civil leader, the governor. This is a message for Joshua. This was the, the spiritual leader, the high priest. And it was a message for all of the people. So God has a second message. Let's listen in and what God has to say to his people, looking in verses three and following. First, God has three questions for his people. And the initial question is this, who saw the glory of the former, former temple? So you look at this people about to reconstruct this temple that Solomon had built, but God says to them, hey, who saw the former glory? Who saw Solomon's temple in all of its splendor? So that had been nearly 66 years since the temple had been built. So the only people in their midst who would have seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory would have been those who were at least in their 70s and above. But the older generations had surely told the younger generations about how magnificent Solomon's temple was. And so God says to them, Who, who's seen the, the temple in all of its glory? The second question that God asks in verse 3 is, how does the temple look to you now? You, you've heard about its glory. Some of you have seen its former glory. How does it look now? Being a nearly, nearly a month into the project, it seems that the people fear that what they're constructing is going to be far inferior to Solomon's temple. It's just, it's just not going to be much at all. That, that's what they're fearing. That's what they're worried about. And so God asks the people, what do you think of the temple that you're working on? And then the third question that God asks in verse 3 is, isn't this temple, is this temple nothing in comparison to, to Solomon's temple? In other words, when you compare what you know of Solomon's temple to the work that you're doing, doesn't it seem so small? Doesn't it seem so insignificant? I mean, after all, when Solomon built that temple, the nation was at its height. It was a wealthy nation. God had blessed Israel in amazing ways. And so Solomon had the best craftsmen brought in from abroad to, to help in the construction of the temple. But now, well, the resources of the people of Israel are so meager, so small. And so they think this temple is just simply not going to be much. You see, the Jews were comparing the present to the past. And they were losing heart. They, they were growing very discouraged. So God has a hopeful word for his people in the midst of the dust and in the midst of the discouragement. In verse 4, the words even so indicate that it's time to quit looking at the past. It's time to get moving in the present. To quit dwelling on yesterday and instead get moving ahead right now. The people were looking backward instead of forward. And they were losing heart. So God gave three commands to help his people gain some momentum. First, God said to his people, be strong. Or as some versions translate it, take courage. Don't lose heart. You're in the, middle, you're in the midst of this work and it seems like a, a huge task. Resources are limited. There's a lot of challenges. But you take courage. You be strong. Now, do you remember Earlier in Israel's history, after God had brought them out of the promised land, they were on the verge of going in and conquering Israel. And yet it was a, it was a daunting task to go in and to take this land from the Canaanites who lived there. And what did God tell the leader of Israel at that time, Joshua? He said to them, you be strong and courageous. 
And now that is exactly the message that God says to his people as they begin the the process of rebuilding the temple. Be strong. Second, God commands them to work. He says, get busy. The temple isn't going to be built if no one is doing anything. you got to be willing to give your time and your talent. you got to be willing to pour your life into this. Leave the past behind and get moving. Get to work. Third, God promised, or pardon me, then God promised his presence to his people. He, he said to his people, this is a huge task, but I'm going to be with you. You're not going to be doing this alone. I will be with you. Now, in 1 Chronicles 28, 20, King David, who was King Solomon's father, gave King Solomon some words before his own death. King David would be dying soon, and Solomon was going to be constructing the temple, and David knew that it was a critical work. And this is what King David told King Solomon in 1 Chronicles 28, 20. Be strong and courageous. Do the work. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord God, my God, is with you. He won't leave you or abandon you until all this work for the service of the Lord's house is finished. Now God tells this people who will be rebuilding Solomon's temple that he will be with them. He'll help them finish the task just as he had helped Solomon before them. Now in verse 5, God reminds his people of his past faithfulness to, to their ancestors when they left Egypt. God had promised to be with them and to help them, and and he did. And so they too, now in their current situation, need not fear. If you'll remember in Haggai 1.14, the Lord promised to empower them for the work that he had called them to. And he's saying to them, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to continue to empower you, to help you do what I've called you to do. The third command that God gave is this, don't be afraid. Now remember, here they are in Jerusalem. The walls of the city are destroyed. The walls of the city provided defense and safety. Those walls are gone. And now enemies and, and foreign invaders can come right into the city. So there's an element of, of danger here. But he says to his people, don't be afraid. Now if you'll notice, he's called the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts in this chapter five times. When we think about this title for God, Lord of armies, it points to the fact that he's the sovereign ruler over all. And that ultimately all the armies, whether heavenly or earthly, will submit to him. He's the Lord of all. Notice that He's called the Lord of armies, and his people are told, do not fear. Why? Because he is all-powerful. No one's going to come in and trump him. No one's going to come in and overtake him. No, God is with his people. He will take care of them, and so they can serve him with courage and with resolve. So God gave three commands. Well, let's look in verses 6 through 9 as God gives three promises to encourage his people. First, in verse 6, he says that he will shake the heavens and the earth. He will shake the sea and the dry land. He'll shake the nations. You see, as ruler of the heavens and the earth, God was able to, to shake things up and to provide for his people. Now, when I read these verses, it made me think of a cartoon that I'd seen when I was a, a boy. And a cartoon character, one cartoon character picked the other one up by his legs and just shook him upside down and all the money that was in in his pockets fell to the ground in a sense God is saying that listen I can take care of you I'll shake the nations and I'll provide I'll I'll take care of this temple interestingly the Persians ended up paying for the reconstruction of this temple the Persians did in Ezra 6 8 we see that God moved 
King Cyrus's heart, but not just King Cyrus's heart, King Darius's heart after him. And money was made available for rebuilding the temple. And guess who paid for it? Well, the surrounding nations who opposed, many of whom opposed the rebuilding of the temple, they were taxed. And that tax money paid for the temple. You can see that in Ezra 6.8. So indeed, God did shake up the nations and provide for the rebuilding of his temple. And later, by the time of Christ, Herod the Great, the Roman ruler of, uh, of Judah and that area, well, he would lead in rebuilding the temple that Zerubbabel and others were constructing. And again, once again, you see that God is providing for the rebuilding of his temple, even from the nations, those who are opposed to him. Next, God says that he will fill the temple with glory. He'll fill the temple with glory. In other words, God would make his presence known among his people. And God said that the final glory would be greater than the former glory. Now, often what we see in the Old Testament is that prophecies are fulfilled in stages. So you see that, that there's a fulfillment in the current day often when the prophet gives the message, and then there's a later fulfillment coming sometime later and perhaps even later at the end of time. And this is one of those prophecies that that, that seems to be the case. You see, when, when, when these folks built this temple and began to worship the Lord there, God would meet his people there. That's why he called them to, to build it. He would make his glory known. But there was still a greater fulfillment to come. You see, in fact, the Old Testament temple pointed forward to a new and greater temple that would be coming the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, in John 2, verses 20 and 21, Jesus referred to his own body as the temple. So when Christ came, what God did is he made his dwelling not in a, not in a physical building. He made himself known through his own son, dwelling with, with the people. Want to talk about God's presence and God's glory? Christ was walking here on earth amongst his people. How glorious. And so Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Not only that, after Christ's death and resurrection, God would form a new covenant community. He would form the church. Now, the universal church is composed of all those who would believe in Christ. But the universal church we see from the New Testament is meant to have expression in every location, in the midst of local churches. And the local church would become a type of temple, a type of temple in which God plants and makes his presence known in a community and in the world through churches. In writing to one of these local churches, the church at Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, Paul told the church that they were God's temple, that God's spirit indwelt in them. So God makes his presence known amongst his people. A people like us, when we gather together to worship him and to glorify him, he makes his presence known to a watching world. In fact, in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10 and, and in verse 21, God says that the church is meant to glorify him, to make his great glory and wisdom known all among the, 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 the world and even beyond, even in the spiritual realm. The church is meant to bring God glory. So the church becomes a type of temple and in a sense is greater fulfillment of this prophecy. Not only that, at the end of time, there'll be a new Jerusalem. And at the new Jerusalem, there'll be no physical temple. It won't be needed. Listen to what 
is written in Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illumines it. And its lamp is the Lamb. You see, at the end of time, God will dwell with his people. He'll be the temple. There'll be no need for a physical temple. So what does this passage teach us? Because the Lord is faithful, serve him with resolve. Because the Lord is faithful, serve him with resolve. God kept his promises to this people when they were rebuilding his temple. And he will keep his promises to you and me today. So make your life count in kingdom work. He'll bless your service. He's faithful. I read a tweet the other day that that gave a great example of this. A man said that a 99-year-old woman had shared the gospel with him. Now think about that. A 99-year-old lady sharing the gospel with this fella. And he told her, well, ma'am, I appreciate that, but I'm already a Christian. And she looked a little disappointed. And she said, well, I'm glad that you are, but I'm kind of disappointed. And he said to her, well, ma'am, why are you disappointed? And she said to him, because I want to see just one more come to Jesus before I go to be with him. Now there's resolve. There's determination. There's a, a commitment to see the kingdom be expanded. Will you serve the Lord with resolve? Will you trust him to be with you and to help you in the midst of of your service to him? Oh, God is calling us to serve him faithfully. Let's reflect on how these verses, this idea should shape our thinking and our lives. First, you are called to serve. You're called to serve. Just as God told the Jews in verse 4, get to work. God has called each of us who know him to serve him. Every believer is meant to be a part of a church family and within the context of that church family is meant to invest their lives using their unique gifts and talents to serve that the church might be strengthened, that the church might be built up. The Apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 4 through 7. He says, now there are different gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different ministries, but the same Lord. And there are different activities, but the same God produces each gift in each person. A manifestation of the Spirit is given to each person for the common good. Every believer is supposed to serve for the common good, that the church might fulfill its mission, that we might make disciples and glorify God. You see, every one of us who knows Jesus, we're meant not just to to attend church, but we're meant to actually invest our lives. Why? Because this church is is a type of temple. It's a place where God dwells amongst his people. And we're supposed to make his glory known to this community and ultimately to the world. People in Uvalde are supposed to to say, what's God like? Well, look at the folks who are part of First Baptist Church. Look at that church. You ought to to be able to see what God is like by, by, by what he's doing here in our midst. But this kind of, this kind of family This kind of of work only happens when each person who knows him pours their life and their heart into serving. And so just as he called his people to serve then, he calls us to serve now. Now, in reality, many believers don't help in the church. And I want to encourage you, if you are a believer, to ask yourself the question, why am I not serving? It could be that you're in a particularly difficult season of life and you just can't. 
It could be that you've got health issues going on or something like that. But I want to encourage you to ask the Lord, how can I serve? Why? Because this should be the normal rhythm of the Christian life. That we're serving, that we're investing, that we're helping the church further the mission of making disciples and making God's glory known. Next, your service to God has far greater impact than what you see. To these Jews, their effort at rebuilding the temple seemed so small. It seemed inferior. It seemed insignificant. Maybe your service to you doesn't seem to count. Teaching that kid's class or or visiting that senior adult, maybe that seems so small. But don't believe that. God takes our smallest acts of service for him, and he uses them in great ways. He uses them in eternal ways. Paul said this to the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So teaching that Sunday school class week after week after week, year after year after year may seem like the same old, same old. Helping serve food and cleaning up after this meal or or that event, it may seem so insignificant. Mamas investing in their little ones day after day may seem so mundane, but in God's economy, he uses our faithful service to accomplish his eternal purposes. You're having a far greater impact than, than what you see when you serve him, when you pour your life into his call. These Jews couldn't understand how their faithful service was going to be instrumental in God fulfilling his eternal purposes and often friends, we simply can't either. We just, we don't see. So keep serving. Keep trusting God is doing a good and eternal work as you serve in his name. Reflecting on this passage, one pastor said this, there is a principle here that applies to you and me. God takes small, imperfect things and builds them into a habitation of his glory. Oh, how we should take courage in our little spheres of influence. And then the author continued as he reflects on Mary's role in raising the Lord Jesus. He said, what more appropriate word could God have said to Mary as Jesus was growing up? Take courage, young mother. You build more than you see. And so it is with every one of us. Nothing you do is a trifle if you do it in the name of God. He will shake heaven and earth to fill your labor with splendor. Take courage courage you build more than you see you've probably heard this saying which illustrates this idea well you can count the apples on a tree but who can count the apples in a seed you never know the way God will use your faithful service Next, as you serve, don't get discouraged when you face difficulties. Don't lose heart. The Jews faced hardships as they tried to rebuild the temple. It's part of serving God. We're going to face difficulties and obstacles, but God promises his presence, so we must not lose heart. Now I want to say a word to to us as a church family. As a church, we must beware of living in the past. Often churches are tempted to live in the past, to focus on past successes, to focus on past achievements. But just as the Jews couldn't stay in the past, they couldn't keep dwelling on Solomon's temple and move forward. So we can't either. We can't live in the past. We're thankful for the sacrifice. We're grateful for the sacrifice of those who've gone before us. We're grateful for 
to, to God for the blessings of, of yesteryear. But the question that's before us today is how can we be faithful now? How can we be faithful now? How can we move forward and serve God in the here and the now? How can we help this church fulfill the mission of making God's glory known to Uvalde and to the world? You see, we must move ahead with determination and with passion. We must serve with resolve now. Now. Next, recognize that Jesus is the new and the greater temple. He's the new and the greater temple. As we've already said, the temple symbolized God's presence among his people. When Christ came, he became God incarnate. The son of God living here on earth. We could see the glory of God face to face for those who, who were living there, who were living then. You see, some 500 years after this temple would be built, God would send his son. But why did God send his son? Why did God make his presence known in flesh and blood instead of stone and mortar? Well, Jesus came so that you and me, sinful as we are, could be forgiven and made right with God. You see, what Jesus did is he, he went to the cross and he took the punishment for all of our rebellion and all of our sin upon himself. And he was buried and he came back to life. And now, when you turn from your sin, when I turn from my sin, we can call out to Jesus and say, forgive me, I want to follow you. And guess what? God's presence, his presence come, comes to dwell within our very hearts. We become God's temple when we trust Christ. The, the, the scriptures teach us that the spirit of God comes to dwell in us. And so every person who has a relationship with Christ becomes a temple in which God dwells. 1 Corinthians 6 talks about that. And so I ask you this morning, have you ever turned from your sin and put your faith in Christ? This is something that you do one time ultimately. It's not something that you can say, well, I'll try to be good, I'll try to straighten up. None of that counts. You can't be good enough. You can't straighten up enough. What you need is the blood of Christ to cover your sins, to, to wipe your sins away. And when you put your faith in this one who came, when you put your faith in Christ, he does. He wipes your sins away and he gives you new life and his spirit comes to dwell within you and you become the temple of God. You become his dwelling place. Does Christ dwell in your heart? Friend, I ask you, does he? If not, this morning he could. He could come and live inside of your heart and once he comes to dwell in your life, he never lets you go. He never leaves. He never departs. You'll always belong to him. Oh, how, how God has been good in sending his son as the new and the greater temple. Next, take heart. The future's bright. Some of you are walking some dark paths right now. If truth be told, your heart is broken. You spend more time crying than, than with smiles, with joy. You hurt. Health issues, family issues, financial issues. But if you're in Christ, in the midst of all of these hardships, this is what you can know one day one day all of that is going to be gone all of it will be gone and he'll give you his peace 
His perfect peace and all of the hurt and pain that you feel, it'll all be gone. The future is bright for those who know the Lord Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth. Everything will be right. So we've seen that God has a bright future for his people. Many of you have probably never heard of a man named Edward Kimball, but I want to tell you a little bit about him. He was a dry goods salesman, and he was involved in a church, and and he taught a teenage boy's Sunday school class. He was burdened that the boys in his class knew the Lord Jesus. One of the young men in his class was named Dwight, and, and he could see that Dwight didn't know the Lord. And so his heart was burdened, and he decided that he was going to go and, and visit Dwight. Dwight worked in a shoe store, and, and he made his way to that shoe store. And as he was walking in, he said that he nearly turned around, just kind of like, odd, kind of awkward dread having this conversation. But he went ahead and he walked into that shoe store. Well, the young man was in the back of the store, so, so he went back into the, the, the back of the store, and, and he began to share Christ's love with Dwight. And right there in the back of that shoe store, Dwight became a believer. He gave his life to the Lord Jesus. Now, Dwight is better known as D.L. Moody. He was the greatest evangelist of the 19th century. You might say the Billy Graham of his day. Moody would go on to share the gospel with thousands upon thousands upon thousands worldwide. He would found the Moody Bible Institute, which trains pastors and church leaders committed to the scriptures still to this day. How many lives have been touched by D.L. Moody? We'll never know. But we do know this. We know about one man that touched D.L. Moody's life. His name was Edward Kimball. You know what? He was just a guy who went to church regularly, who taught a boy's Sunday school class, and who sought to share Jesus with others. You see, you can count the apples on a tree, but who knows how many apples are in a seed? Because the Lord is faithful. Serve him with resolve. If you're a Christian, I want to ask you, how are you investing your life? How are you investing your talents for the good of others and for the Lord's glory? Won't you serve? Won't you invest your life? Won't you make your life count for the next generations, for the coming generations? Won't you help with Awana or won't you help with, with our ministry to seniors? Or There are countless ways that you can invest. Won't you pour your life into the kingdom of God? Won't you serve the King of Kings? This is what he created you for, to know him, to love him, to serve him. Oh, who knows how many apples are in that seed that you might plant? Ma'am, how many apples are there? Sir, how many apples are in that seed when you pour your time and your talents and your effort into serving? Oh, we have no idea. The Lord does. He knows. We don't. But we need to be planting. We need to be planting. We need to be serving. Now, maybe you're here and you don't know the Lord. And maybe in your heart, deep down, there's always been a longing to know him. Maybe there's been a longing, maybe that's not been your experience, but maybe there's been a longing for your life to count. Maybe you've always thought, you know what, I want to make my life count. I want to make my life about serving others and, and pouring into others. Well, the starting point for making a real difference in the here and now is knowing Jesus yourself. 
Well, how do you become a follower of Jesus? Well, you turn from your sin. You say to Jesus, I don't want to go my own way anymore. Jesus, I'm turning to you, and I want to follow you. I believe you came and died and rose again, and I'm yours. And when you call out to the Lord in faith, he will save you, and he'll never let you go. You'll be in his hands for all eternity, even if you mess up. You'll be a part of his kingdom, and he'll put you into his service. Oh, you can make a difference there. You can make a huge difference. You can make an eternal difference. Join me in prayer.